0: You're listening to Dramas Over Flowers. This is a special edition of What's Up in Dramaland with Saya, Anissa, and Baroma. Hi, I'm Anissa. This episode is the first part of our overview of problematic tropes and representations in K-drama. I foolishly thought we'd be able to cover everything in one go, but we soon realized that was an act of hubris on my part. So, we ended up splitting this special into two very long episodes. In this one, we discuss why representation matters, then dive into K drama representations of racialized and queer characters, and particular examples of both good and bad representation we've seen, including some of the many examples you all have sent in. We also provide some nerdy historical context on race, colonialism, and the legacy of blackface in South Korea because I have to use my master's degree for something. Thank you so much to each and every listener who responded to our call for what you'd like to see us talk about. We couldn't mention everyone by name, but each and every message meant so much to us. Also, we referenced a ton of articles in this episode, so please click on the link in the description for our blog post with extended show notes. It includes quotes, links, and additional notes from us on stuff we remembered we wanted to say at two a.m. the night after the recording. This episode was produced with the support of our Patreon patrons. Thank you so much! You can find our page at Patreon.com/slash/DramasOverFlowers. And now, let's get to the episode. Brace yourselves—it's a doozy. Hi,
1: everyone. This is Saya.
0: This is Anissa. And this is Foruma. And this is, as you probably noticed from the title, it's a very special episode, not only because it's on a different topic and it's a different format from what we usually do, but also because this is the first episode where we have like a ton of listener feedback, which is like (laughs) the most exciting thing that has ever happened to us. So yeah. I just wanted to, yeah, we wanted to thank you all up top just for the amazing amounts of feedback that you all sent us by like email and Twitter and Instagram and
2: um, voice notes. Oh my God, voice memos. Yeah. We we were not expecting. We were like, maybe two people will answer the call. (laughs) But no, you guys surprised us. Thank you so much. So we wanted to do this episode
0: because not only because of um, the recent brouhaha that's happened over um, the drama that recently started airing, I think three or four weeks ago called Backstreet Rookie, but also just because this is a topic, I mean, if you're a listener that's been with us for a while, you know that these kinds of topics do come up. Like we talk about representation, we talk about, um, you know, race, we talk about the representation of women, but we haven't done
2: one this comprehensive. Right. They have been specific to uh, news that were topical at the time, like the Me Too movement, like uh, when the burning sun scandal happened. So it was topical and we, we kind of limited our conversation to that topic. We didn't really talk about the larger representation issue in this industry's work, the industry that we all love and spend so much time talking about. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and so for
0: reference, those episodes that we are referring to are episode 16, in which we talked about the Me Too movement and toxic K-drama tropes about the way that women are portrayed and how relationships are portrayed. And then we did episode 37 on the Burning Sun scandal. Um, and then also episode 35, which was our collaboration podcast with the Riz Test podcast, which was about Muslims in Korean dramas.
2: You guys can go and listen to that. We already covered a lot of what you guys talked about in those episodes. So we may not go um, very deep into those topics this time. And if you follow our blog as well, I'm sure you've already read
0: Saya's incredible article about racial stereotypes in um, (laughs) Korean drama, which is basically a magnum opus. It's so good. Um, If you haven't had a chance to read that, go read it at dramasoverflowers.net. It's very comprehensive. And that's another place, actually, where you can see some of the stuff that we've mentioned, for example, when we did the collaboration with the RIS test. Um, It's really, really good. Thank
2: you, Saya, for for your work. Thank you, sir.
1: I could not have done it without your help.
2: Well, you had our moral support. (laughs)
1: Yes. (laughs) But it really struck me after it went up that there really isn't a comprehensive disc- uh, discussion on racial representation in K-dramas even when people have written about particular egregious moments in particular dramas no one's ever sat down and put it all together yeah and it's like it's a really useful exercise actually because it helps you to see the trends and it you know it contextualizes every instance of it into a bigger picture of what the scene is like in Kent. Yeah. Absolutely. And the
2: examples really help Um, Saya, because often when we are trying to argue these points and we are trying to explain what a good representation is and k ramas have done good representations we off the top of our head we can't think of examples of good or bad representations so to have them laid out the way you have it helps me because then i can point out your article and be like please go read this she does a very good job of explaining both sides of the argument that helps me just
1: i basically plan to use it for the rest of my life that's the goal (laughs) i urge everybody else to do the same for anyone else is like why is this like this just save yourself the emotional labor and just just like you know what go and read this yeah
2: and our site will also appreciate the traffic thank you
0: (laughs) 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 all right so um i think that's a good segue actually into the intro for this episode and one of the things that we do want to acknowledge before we jump into this is that obviously um i think we all understand that a lot of these problematic tropes and representations are present in every type of media that we consume around the world. And it's not particular to Korean drama. I think there's a ton of really egregious stuff that we can all agree happens in American television, which is a topic that we will not go into directly, but we will certainly be referencing here today. I, I mean, seriously, like there was a scandal like a couple weeks ago about how Tina Fey has done all kinds of blackface and brownface on her shows and she still hasn't really apologized I think she just apologized because suddenly she realized that it was wrong but anyway this is something that a lot of us have to reckon with in our own cultures but this is the medium that we love right this is the medium that we are fans of and so it's the one that we have an emotional connection with so that's why we wanted to talk about it because this is our fandom and we don't want to just ignore these kind of topics not only because it affects us personally because but because we know that there are a lot of people In our fan community that are personally impacted by these and it's not, it's not easy for them to just be like, Oh, well, it's just entertainment. Um, because sometimes it can, it can hurt you and take you by surprise when you're just like enjoying your, enjoying your time watching something fun. So we wanted to do that. And we also wanted to bring up some historical context and some, some cultural context. And I can bring that with my slightly academic background. So I think that's a good segue into the question that I wanted to ask. You too. Which is, why does representation matter?
2: So representation matters to me because diversity is reality. It's out in the world. And as much as I use Korean dramas as an escape, I also use it as a medium for um, facing issues in the world. A lot of the things that I love about well-written Korean dramas is how well they deal with certain issues, be it familial, between friends, colleagues, between lovers, between parents and children, they explore issues so well. So when it comes to representation of minorities, or when I suddenly see an Indian character popping into my Korean dramas, the the one space where I usually don't have to worry about how minorities are represented because they are almost never there, and the character is treated as a joke. That jolts me out of this wonderful land of you know storytelling that I love, that, that I critique for other reasons. And I'm suddenly reminded that Indians exist in Korean dramas as well. And if they are to be shown in this medium, I want them to be shown with respect and with understanding. And hey, let them be a part of your joke. Don't make them the butt of it. And not just Indians. When I see gay or lesbian characters or trans characters being made fun of, when I when I see Muslim characters being the butt of a joke, I feel personally offended because it, they're not causes to me. These these are people I care about. And I don't really see how you would not have empathy for them. And I that's why it matters because it's real world. And if you're going to bring real world into my dramas, then don't just make them the butt of a joke. So I, So for me, it would be, firstly, we are people of colour. And
1: I guess me and Anissa in particular, we're people of colour who exist as a minority in a majority white society where our groups are marginalised in various ways, be that through systemic oppression or everyday racism, microaggressions, all of those things. So that's the context from which we are forced to approach our media, whether we want to or not. And I think it's important when we have this conversation because a lot of times people are like, why do you bring politics into the this, this space of entertainment? Why can't you just enjoy it? And you're like, I literally cannot enjoy it. I want to enjoy it as much as anyone else, but it's impossible for me once you drag something like that, which demeans and denigrates people who... Punch, punching down. Anything punching down is just you know it's it's not acceptable to me and i can't watch it with uh, any kind of equanimity so coming from that perspective that's a big reason why it matters if you want to sort of approach it from a more sort of objective perspective you could like you don't even need to bring in things like personal experience and this and that you can just be very impartial and and just you know stereotypes and bad representation that's bad storytelling yeah Bad mm-hmm. representation is a lack of nuance. And, and you know, a lack of nuance is just bad writing. And we know better than most how capable of nuance K-drama is. And I would say it's far superior to, for example, Western dramas in how they show us that nuance. And so when you know that, you know, K-drama is capable of it, but it chooses not to, then I don't think it's unreasonable to say well actually we'd like you to apply your abilities of nuance in this area as well we know you can do it just try a little harder the internet is at your fingertips more closer to your fingertips than anyone else is on earth It's very easy to Google things or Naver or whatever you're going to use. It's very, very easy to look things up. Just put in a little bit more effort and make a better story. And lastly, in the general pursuit of human decency, I have a deep distaste for jokes and stories that come at the expense of other people or other groups. I just, I don't find that necessary. I think it's uh, cheap and we can do better than that.
0: Thank you, Saya. I would 100% agree with all of that. I think the only thing... Um, that I would add is that saying that you don't want to bring politics into your art or your entertainment doesn't mean that the art is not political. Art is always political. It's just that if you don't see politics in that art, it's because the politics in the art are only reinforcing your own politics. Um, And so if you're the dominant majority in a situation, or if, if the politics of that particular piece of art are not harming you, and therefore you think that it's Fine and other people should just go along with it. That's something that the viewer should examine and think about. On that note, I just want to give a little bit of extremely nerdy cultural and historical context because I know that not everyone has had the benefit and the privilege of being able to like sit in a in a university setting and just like read about Korea for two years in grad school, which I'm I was very blessed to be able to do. And I was actually like whining to my mom last night about how like I did this. MA program and now I'm like it's completely useless <laughs> I was like it was so much fun and it was so interesting and it felt so important while I was doing it now I'm just like what did I even do it for and now I'm in the real world but she was like you're gonna use it tomorrow I was like yeah that's true oh way to go auntie <laughs> yeah, she, she's smart like that so. <laughs> so yeah so I just wanted to bring in some of that context before we go into the historical context I just wanted to bring up a few points which is that um There's a currently pretty significant demographic shift going on in South Korea. So um, there's been a lot of migration to South Korea since the 90s, basically. Mm. Um, And particularly like migrant workers started coming since the mid 80s when they started preparing for the Seoul Olympics in 88.
2: Um,
0: And then just in general, because of South Korea's pretty rapid rise to economic prosperity it's been a destination for like we think i don't i think i feel like we talk a lot about like english teachers going to korea from here at least like americans talk about that a lot Mm. but most of the migration to korea has actually been from other asian countries and the largest group of uh migrants are actually chinese um like ethnic koreans who kind of came back korea after a few generations to work or like students international students from like a lot of different places like china um, indonesia singapore um, people come from a lot of different asian countries so there has been quite a rapid shift i mean obviously still very ethnically and racially homogenous i think the most recent numbers i saw that it's maybe between two and four percent non-ethnic korean the population but it's definitely something that is on people's minds. And, you know, like the first naturalized citizen that that Korea had was not that long ago. And so there's definitely, I think, an anxiety around who Koreans are. And um, sort of there's a shift from this sort of government sanctioned. Like the idea of this like ethnic Korean nation that's shifting to like a more multicultural nation in terms of like what the government says about itself, what the nation says about itself in like official um, documents and official, like what you learn in school about your country, that is kind of changing. Yeah. Um, there's also been a ton of marriage migration. So a lot of Korean men have married Southeast Asian women from like Vietnam and like, Thailand and a few other countries. Some of them are Chinese. Those are called like multicultural families so that the father tends to be Korean and the mother tends to... To be not Korean, um, and a lot of these are men who live in rural areas. Yeah. Who basically, women did not want to stay in rural areas and marry these men, so they moved to the big city. And so a lot of these men found wives through. They have like marriage brokers in a lot of these countries, and so, I mean, there's a lot. It's it's very deep. I don't want to go into like all the. Con- it's very interesting, but I wrote a paper on this, so I, that's why I know too many details. But anyways, I just wanted to kind of bring up these sort of these shifts. And so and there are enough migrant workers at this point where like they have, you know, like Nepal town in Seoul and they have these sort of they've started having like ethnic enclaves. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, like refugees have started coming to South Korea in the last few years. And then there's been, you know, like anti-refugee protests. And then there's been people who say, like, we should have welcomed refugees. So there's there's definitely a conversation happening around all this. Mm. However, there is no anti-discrimination law in South Korea right now. And I think that's also something to just know in the back of your mind. I think there's been people who have tried to put it into effect and some governments have said that they will attempt to pass it, but it's never actually passed. And what I was reading is part of the reason for that is because there's a pretty strong Christian lobby and they feel that if an anti-discrimination law were to be passed, it would also apply to LGBTQ people, and they have a problem with that. Oh my God! However, things are changing. It's not like this sort of static thing. Yeah, like, of course. There's been a lot of discussion about it. A lot of people in the government are also changing. So you know, like things are moving. As as with every country, like things are things are changing and moving. Yeah, um, all the time. And I think in general, government. Agencies tend to be more conservative than the people in a lot of ways in most countries. True. So that's what's kind of going on today in a very simplistic and broad kind of way. Yeah. Um, and now I want to go back to history. So we are definitely going to be mentioning blackface here today. So I just want to go into like a really brief description of blackface, sort of its origins before we start talking about it in the context of Korea. So. If you aren't familiar, the history of blackface originated in the U.S. and it was this. It was at a time when vaudeville uh, shows were
2: basically the most popular form of entertainment in the U.S. If, uh, if you could just briefly explain what uh, vaudeville shows are. Because I've just read about them, and I'm pretty sure most people haven't heard.
0: Google define vaudeville. (laughs) Okay, so um, since I don't know the definition, I just Googled it. So it's a type of entertainment popular chiefly in the US in the early 20th century, featuring a mixture of specialty acts, such as burlesque comedy and song and dance. So this definition is very whitewashed, but vaudeville was deeply entrenched and entangled with minstrel shows. And what minstrel shows were were shows in which basically white people would put on ex- exaggerated costumes and makeup and pretend to be black people yeah and th- but with like ex- like very varied- Distorted features um, and like kind of grotesque-looking
2: makeup. For instance, one of the shows popular was Uncle Tom's Cabin as a live show. There are images of white actors with black faces to represent characters. That's one of the you know racist imagery that's still very gut wrenching to see that that was something people enjoyed watching.
0: Yeah. So so the first minstrel shows were actually performed in the 1830s. So wow. it has a
2: very very long
0: history. And if you have heard of about the Jim Crow laws in the Southern U.S., which were the names for the laws that legalized segregation, Jim Crow was actually the first popularly known blackface character. That's actually something that I also didn't know. Oh, like, um, but I, I learned that.
2: Was it from that that Disney um, that Disney uh, movie?
0: No, no, Jim Crow. No, Jim Crow was 1830. Song of mm-hmm. the South came out in 1940. So it has a very long history, um, and for a long time. This was like the main type of public entertainment. Between the end of the Civil War and turn of century, it was very, very popular in the North and Midwest okay. where people didn't really meet black people or see black people, but they really enjoyed watching these minstrel shows. Yeah, And it's it has been so influential in American culture and society to the point where like, I don't think most Americans even understand. Like i only found out recently that Mickey Mouse was inspired by minstrel shows which was, like, shocking to me, (laughs) but it's true. Um, And, like, any popular American actor from that era has, has done... Like, Shirley Temple did blackface, Judy Garland did blackface. So it was extremely prevalent, and it was... You know, something that because it was so prevalent, because it was present in entertainment in such a huge way, it just became very influential. And normalized.
1: In in my reading as well, when I was researching um, my writing, I found it really interesting that the actors who engaged in blackface for those performances, mm. it was a way for working class white actors or just people in the white working class to rise because it allowed them to access fame and fortune and popularity in the way that they couldn't have had they remained in their native white condition.
0: Yeah and it's so entrenched if you think about the fact that um, like, over and over in cultural history white artists have basically either used the props of black culture as almost a costume or just like stolen their, <laughs> what they're doing and, and just done it at, at themselves. And oftentimes, like when black artists do something, it doesn't get the same kind of um, attention or monetary compensation as when a white artist. These are economic dynamics that have continuously existed until now, right?
1: The, the very essence of blackface is that it reduces blackness to a costume that people can put on and cast off but only those who are not black inside get to profit um from it whereas the real owners of it do not yeah pretty much exactly i just
2: wanted to add because i can't think of not not Uh, living in your society, I'm not as familiar with the characters uh, that you see on TV. But the one character, of course, being Indian that stands out to us is Apu, of course. And the fact that it was only this year that the white actor who voices Apu has finally been replaced. And that's insane. And this is
0: like five, I think, five years after Harry Kondabolu started his campaign.
2: Yeah. And like he did a documentary, like he's done a lot. And now finally, yeah. yeah. So I'm sure, I'm sure our listeners can think of any number of instances with uh, Black characters having had the same, you know, being used by a white actor to get fame. But yeah, I could only think of the one brown. We draw from our own experiences yeah, pretty, in pretty, every pretty situation. This, this has always really, really bugged me. The character, everything about it. Anytime the scene would come up, I would just, I would not be watching. I, instinctively. But you know, but, like...
0: Yeah. Growing up as an American child at the height of The Simpsons' power, at the height of its fame and popularity, (laughs) like when I was a kid, if you weren't watching The Simpsons, like there was something wrong with you, which like I was, something was wrong with me because my parents didn't let me watch that. Same. But you got mocked. Like people would use the Apu voice to make fun of you. Yeah. Like if you were brown, that was part of how you got bullied. So, and I mean, especially for example, if you are the child of immigrants who... On a 7-Eleven, you know, like, that was an experience that a lot of people were forced into because of the kind of economic conditions that and opportunities that were available for people of your background, and then to be basically bullied because of this extremely racist character. Yeah, I mean, we're getting a little bit off track, but but yeah, but we're
2: basically talking about why representation matters, why correct representation, or at least sympathetic representation matters. Uh, taking into account the people that you're representing. And, and okay, just one last digression. This thing, it, it just came to my mind right now. I I, I think it was a teen when they... Um, do you remember, uh, Saab? There was this show called... Uh, I think it was by Disney called The Elephant Princess, where they have this white girl who was like... Um, this white teenage girl who was told that she's the princess of this magical Indian land and this um elephant would appear. Just just look up um elephant. I used to love that show, okay? Because they had elephants. elephants. The quote unquote love interest, <laughs> uh a boy who was pretty much um uh, her protector bodyguard and slave which I didn't see what was problematic wow. about it at that That's time so many levels totally but, <laughs> oh no like he's bound to her and he he's basically her servant and he And It it was an Indian boy. And the thing is that you could very clearly see that they were kind of going for a romantic angle with the two of them. But then at the end of the drama, they kind of cop out and he remains her servant and kind of like fades into the background. And it was the weirdest cop out. It's like in the last moment, they just could not commit. And the whole thing is so so supremely racist. I mean, I just when I think back on how happy I was that this thing exists, because I could see even though it was a mockery of my culture, I could just see certain symbols of it. And hey, you had a brown Mm -hmm. boy as a main character in a Disney or Disney-esque TV series. And I was just, yeah, it's sad. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I have similar feelings about Aladdin, which like when I was a kid, I would watch that over and over and it made me so happy. And now I'm just like, "Mm." (laughs) that did not
3: represent us.
1: (laughs) But you know, it's, it's so interesting that both of you say that because what it speaks to is that hunger, the thirst... To be seen, mm. to be represented, and when your options are like nothing or this one, you know I mean it's representation, right? Yeah. Which at that point is it's a valid place to be because you know developing. Yeah. But at this point we, we've come to a place where we realize that we can ask for more and we can ask for better. And that we don't have to just take what we're given. Like, we can have a, a meal that is an actual meal made of good ingredients. Mm. And that it doesn't have to be sort of the, the disgusting spat out bits that people that someone else has left on the plate. That you as a starving person are forced to eat because there's nothing yeah, else. i be grateful for it. Weird analogy, but yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I actually don't remember those things. Like, The Elephant Princess. And I wasn't allowed to watch Aladdin either because, you know... Jasmine goes around naked half the time, so does Aladdin. So that was very racy for for young Sia and her family. (laughs) Not allowed to watch this, not allowed to watch The Simpsons because that was rude. And you know, again, I think a lot of Asians, especially diasporic Asians, can relate to this. Our parents didn't let us watch a lot of those shows. Mm -hmm. So of course we went off and secretly
0: watched them as soon as we were able to. (laughs)
1: Yep.
0: Or at your friend's house. (laughs) I think the only episodes of The Simpsons I watched this was at my friend's house.
1: Yeah. So but There was just one thing I wanted to add mm-hmm. to that before we went on. Apart from why representation matters, I think it's also worth just um, ans- uh, like asking, you know, what does representation create? Because we're talking about mm. all of these consequences of, of bad representation, and it's really, really important that we don't just say, oh, it matters. Why does it matter? It matters because it creates something in real life, which can, you know, it can be either beneficial or it can be harmful. And that's why representation matters.
0: And I think the other thing that I would just add to that, which is going to help me segue into the next thing that I'm going to talk about, is that not only do, does representation have consequences after the fact, like once you have a type of representation, that it portrays a certain group in a particular way, it helps to justify that group of people being treated a certain way um, and normalize it. But I think the opposite is also true is that when people are put in a certain position Mm -hmm. by the society they live in, it becomes easier to create these kinds of harmful representations about them. And I think that that relationship between uh, sort of reality and representation is like this ongoing kind of back and forth. Um, and so I think like the work is necessary, both in our like political real life spaces, although I hate to kind of separate them this way. But like, uh, I guess like art is one of the many ways in which we need to combat these types of harmful representations. And to sort of segue from that, I want to talk a little bit about the history of blackface in Korea and the history of American imperialism in Korea. So um as we, most of us, I think, know, like, After 1945, um, once the Allies won World War II, the Japanese were forced to surrender, and then the U.S. and the Soviet Union basically split the Korean Peninsula in two, and it was a pretty arbitrary decision, although it was also linked somewhat to very, well... It's complicated, but basically like it was it was a very arbitrary decision, just like stick the 38th parallel and then just be like, okay, well, now you're two countries and Russia can have that one. And the U.S. is going to take this one. Mm. And it was a decision made with, you know, almost zero regard for the actual people that were going to be affected by it. And one other thing that happened when all these American soldiers came to South Korea is they brought their own sort of ideas about race Um, and the hierarchy of races. Because if you remember at this time, the U.S. is still segregated, right? This is before the civil rights movement. They still have the Jim Crow laws. They still have all of that. And one of the things that the U.S. Army bases had was this Korean Armed Forces Network, which started airing in, I think, 1957. Yes, I think around 1957 or 1956. And this was kind of something that was not only available to the soldiers, but it was available to everyone in South Korea if they wanted to watch it. And so a lot of people would say, oh, like, there's no real stats available about how many people watched it. But it was kind of this common thing that people would say that, like, if you want to learn English, you should watch AFN Korea. Or if you want to, if you love American culture, you can, you know, like you could watch movies and soap operas and sports. And and Bong Joon-ho actually says that he developed his love for for Hollywood by watching Um, the Armed Forces Network. And um, for a long time, South Korea was Hollywood's biggest market outside of North America. So there wasn't only a military presence in South Korea. And by the way, this information that I'm quoting is from Nadia Y. Kim's chapter. So this is from a book called Race and Racism in Modern East Asia. And it's Nadia Y. Kim's chapter called The United States Arrives, Racialization and Racism in Post-1945 South Korea. So it's just talking about how With the arrival of black and white soldiers, there was this new sort of hierarchy of races that Koreans hadn't really thought about before, but because it was also in the context of this post-1945 world order where they had been dominated by Japan, and then they also had the historical memory of being dominated by China, and then now suddenly the US was in charge, and even within, even though Japan was technically the enemy in reality, like Japan and the US was actually cooperating. And so in a sense, it was like South Koreans were even like the third person on that totem pole, if that makes sense, because Japan was kind of like handing over a lot of their colonial infrastructure, basically directly to the US occupation. Mm -hmm. And they used a lot of the same power structures, instead of like dismantling them and redoing them because the people who came... Um, to occupy South Korea were like clueless about anything to do with politics or government or anything. They were just soldiers who were just randomly sent there. So then that kind, and then also there was this sense of Korean ethno-nationalism that had really been fostered by Japanese colonialism and the Japanese insistence on the fact that they were ethnically and racially different from each other. And that was the first time that Koreans had actually had a sense of like uh, their own blood ethnicity in such a powerful way like I don't think that that had been like a conversation until you know like even the term Minjuk which is often used to describe Koreans as this like ethno-national people like that was also from the colonial era Mm. um so then this this sort of um this actually just hardened that sense of racial identity um and so I'm not going to go like too deep into this but basically there has been since then this tension between like viewing whiteness as um, something to be aspired to and something that has power and prestige and also something that you resent and something that has harmed you and something that has um, oppressed you, that tension exists. And then there's also this tension of like seeing how, for example, Black soldiers were treated by the American occupying forces and seeing them as being somehow lower, but then also having a sense of solidarity with them because they were also treated badly by the white. So it's like, it's very complicated. It's not something that you can simply just, you know, put into a box, but that was kind of the the context. And then for a long time, blackface was a pretty commonly accepted comedy element on Korean television. So that actually persisted. And it was, it came not only from American television, but also from like, um, after 1965, trade was open between South Korea and Japan. And Japan was actually also really interestingly creating like, blackface dolls and, like, minstrel dolls and things and, like, exporting them to the U.S. Um, And so then they began exporting them to South Korea as well, which was, like, a thing that blew my mind I had no idea about. It's so weird. Yeah, it's very weird. So this became, like, a comedic trope, and, like, the reason that they stopped doing blackface commonly... On Korean television was actually because of the Olympics in 1988, and at that point, people were like, "Oh, like this might be offensive to people who are coming from African African countries, so we should stop." But then, like after every few years, there seems to be some kind of resurgence, <laughs> or like a new incident. Like it hasn't totally gone away. Is what I'm saying. So you know, like if you and I'm gonna link all of these articles and stuff that I'm citing because I want people to be able to, like slowly go through this, and I don't have enough time to really give it the time that it deserves. But because of that long history, occasionally it just kind of reappears, like we've seen it happen in K-pop videos, we've seen it happen in um, variety shows, like occasionally every few year- years, um, it kind of pops up. And like the the article that I'm going to link that's about blackface in Korea and like the history of blackface in Korea is actually from 2012. So like maybe some of the language is um, outdated compared to how we talk about race now, but it happened in response to another blackface scandal. So I just wanted to kind of put that there for some like short-term historical context. And I know that's a lot, but I just wanted to to leave that kind of um, context in the back of people's minds because I don't want us to I think it's important for us to acknowledge our own historical positioning and our own um, experiences as viewers because they absolutely affect how we watch something. But I also think it's important for us to know a little bit more about the historical context of the media that we're consuming because I mean anyone who lives in any country that makes media knows that the media that is represented on TV is not. representation of your real life but it's very much affected by um the place in which it's made yeah oh and i don't if i didn't say this like very clearly like a lot of the stereotypes that um that korean society has about black people have come through american media so I, i mean i i don't know if i explicitly said that but that's mainly where they came from
1: You know what I found really interesting in in the article that you linked about this, about blackface, the history of blackface in Korea, is that it's it's quite clear that by 1988, uh, it was widely acknowledged that it was problematic. And what we've been hearing very recently, especially in the Backstreet Rookie discussion, is that, you know, they don't know any better. And actually, you know, it's, it's not widely known. But I find it really interesting that we can continue making that argument like 30 plus years after it's clearly, you know, been acknowledged as something that is not okay.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think maybe, yeah, I don't think that maybe that It was understood to be problematic in the way that we understand it today to be problematic. But there was definitely an understanding of like, this isn't nice. Yeah, we we find it funny to make fun of people like this, but they will not find it funny. Like they will be offended by it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like there was an acknowledgement. As in,
1: this is offensive.
0: Right. Even if we don't necessarily find it offensive.
1: Like whichever way you approach it like whatever their reasoning was for arriving at that conclusion, they had arrived at that conclusion. Mm. And I wonder if, does it continue because to them there's, because there's this idea of it being an act behind closed doors. Like if you do it amongst yourselves, it's okay, but you shouldn't do it in front of them. And how that plays into the conversation, uh, in into K-drama as a global phenomenon. Like for example, in in my essay, I talked about it, how cable stations, for example, do it a little better. Not always, but like they have more of an awareness of an international audience, whereas the worst instances do tend to be in products made for a domestic audience. So whether they realize they're being watched or not, and if they would do it differently, if they had thought, oh, this is going to, for example, an American audience, would they not do it?
0: I think it's not only about the audience, because I think that cable has been doing more nuanced and complicated stories since the beginning. So like the really big first big cable TV show that kind of exploded in popularity was Answer Me 1997, that was 2012. And before that, TVN wasn't really a name that was associated with dramas. Mm -hmm. But I think it's also, maybe that is part of it, but I also think that like cable TV just has more freedom to do complex and nuanced stories in the way that maybe broadcast television either doesn't have the freedom to do or it just is so established in certain kind of conservative tropes because of who the audience is um assumed to be by like the people who are in charge of production like broadcast audiences tend to be older they tend to be i think more socially conservative so i i think that there is a perception that and i don't know if that's changing now but i think there definitely was a perception that like cable audiences would be a like you don't have the same kind of rules that broadcast networks have to you know yeah, be cognizant of, but also like there was like this, I think definitely this freedom that writers and directors and actors had to tell more complicated stories on cable. And that's why a lot of them started leaving broadcast shows and going to cable. And you know, like you had like Na PD, who's famously did One Night in Two Days for like many, many years and basically made it what it was. And then he left and he started doing, uh you know, like the Boys Over Flowers and things like that. And so, like, Youth Over Flowers. <laughs> you told <double flowers. laughs> grand, 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 yeah. grandpa's overflow. Yeah, no, first it was grandpa's it was. But he moved to Cable. And so I think a lot. and I, and I remember you reading an article, I think it was like in Jungang uh Milbo or something, where there was this discussion about how cable allows for more complex and interesting stories. And that's why a lot of people were leaving um, broadcast. And I think that might be part of the reason why like now a lot of the producing power is in the hands of production companies, like independent production companies, rather than like the in-house broadcast ones that used to be dominant. So I think now what we will do is move into a more specific I think let's move away from the historical context and the industry context and talk about like specific dramas. Um, And I want to start off our discussion of race and K-drama with our listener Marcia's voice memo, which is an amazing voice memo. And so we're going to play the whole thing
3: because it's very, very
0: good. Hi,
3: this is Marcia Howard. I am located in Brooklyn, New York, and I have been listening to Drama Over Flowers for a while. I've been watching Korean dramas for about... Mm, three years now. I started in 2017 um, with Boys Over Flowers and very much just sort of fell into the journey and probably have watched around a hundred so far. Sometimes I have that feeling that I've reached the end of Korean dramas um, and watched them all. I haven't. Uh, so it's it's been kind of fun and exciting. When I saw that you guys put out a call in response to, you know, sort of how Korean dramas discuss race and or very specifically blackface or black people Um, as a black woman and a Korean drama watcher, this sort of really struck me and I was both excited to talk a bit more about it and just wanted to sort of lend a voice. The first time I actually recall seeing a black person in Korean dramas watching Man to Man on Netflix there's a scene in which they're on the train and and I can't think of the actor's name, but he's standing there and he's next to Park Hae Jin. And, you know, I've since come to really enjoy watching both of these actors in a lot of uh, different shows, but this is my first exposure, I think, to both of them. And as he's on the train, this black man approaches him, and it's like this very terrifying moment. And as you begin to realize and processing process what's happening, even as a Black person, like, oh, white, right, they're scared of him because he is a Black man. And this is sort of being perpetuated that this is okay throughout South Korea. And part of the reason that I think I enjoyed watching Korean drama so much was for the escapism and for the lack of feeling that when I watched american tv seeing black people portrayed as thugs or seeing you know there just wasn't any of that because there were no black people and i you know still again at the very beginning of my korean drama watching experience this whole scene plays out and then turns out this guy is a fan and it's all resolved as a misunderstanding but you know just the fact that this is how it played out in the first place and it also led me to feel sort of semi-betrayed as I like read through the recaps of famous Korean drama uh, websites that I followed. So I won't necessarily mention one, but it's a fairly big one. And they included a lot of recaps of dramas uh, over the years. And you read through, there's just this very quick mention that he is approached by a fan on a train and not that it's terrifying because he's a black man. And there's just all of these sort of racial uh, dynamics if they're not really exploring. And I think that's also part of the reason I have been enjoyed listening to the blog so much because I think in your discussions, you guys often go there. The second time I recall sort of being exposed to this dynamic was in Reply 1988. I feel like I'm saying this dynamic, but really it's just like more of like seeing a black person in Korean dramas and one being shocked and like, oh, look, there's a black person. And then also... Realizing that it's sort of reduced to this sort of flattened stereotype, which you know, whatever. So there's a scene. I think it's episode 16 where they're at a singing competition, and he's been practiced. One of the characters has been practicing a Stevie Wonder cover, and is very excited to sing it. And then shows up at the audition, and there's a black person singing, and it, of course, is you know, a black person singing, and it's there's nothing offensive with it. I mean, there are plenty. Of- People from all nationalities you can sing, but it's just sort of that flattening, one dimensional sort of use of the character that sort of plays up to stereotypes. And then the third, I've tried to go back and figure out which episode is in, but the show is called Father, I'll Take Care of You. And there are two characters who meet in America and they're working in a coffee shop and a, one of the woman is working in a coffee shop and the man is sort of this business owner who stops the coffee shop at night. And I believe that a black person comes in to hold her up at gunpoint. And then there's another scene sort of later on where like, there's this woman sort of, I'm trying to remember it all correctly, but I the whole thing is like, again, it's sort of reduced to the sort of criminal element where as when you're watching Korean dramas, when they have a white person in the scene, they're usually a business owner or some sort of professional environment where you see a black person, it's like a criminal and, or a singer or a fan that everyone should be afraid of. And it's surprised that they speak Korean. And it can be a bit disheartening um, because you know that racism exists everywhere, but I think, I mean, as I mentioned before, the goal is usually to sort of escape from the daily life and to sort of be confronted with it in such a blatant way um, can really sometimes be a turn off to what you're watching. I don't think I finished um, Father, I'll Take Care of You, and I've definitely become more aware of it as I've watched more dramas and I'm more likely to just like sort of disconnect. Uh, obviously, all of this blue started because of Not started, but it's come up more and more because of Backstreet Rookie. And I was one of those people who tried to watch the first episode and sort of a like, how bad can it be? Oh, really bad. (laughs) Anyway, this message has gotten a bit long and I just wanted to say uh, thank you and keep up the good work. And I look forward to seeing how this episode shapes up.
2: So, first of all, thank you so much, Marcia. She really explained... (laughs) Her reaction to these scenes and the shock it gives you when you suddenly have someone, a character that could be representative of uh, you or a culture that you're very familiar with, shown in a very one-dimensional way.
1: And also, when after that you're you've seen it and you're like, I need to see what other people are saying about this, so you mm-hmm. go and you look for the reaction. Ah, uh, yeah. And you can't find it, or
0: <laughs> you find them defending it, <laughs> which is worse. So I think that that feeling of betrayal that Marcia mentions is so, um, I really can relate to that because I think for, I think probably for you as well, I like that feeling I had that after the man who dies to live first aired and and K2. So I never watched K2. I just heard about <laughs> it from you, but I think that was after Man who dies to live. So the man who dies to live was like the first time I was like, Oh, okay, drama does this too. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, so, That's, that's disappointing. I mean, it was, and I think it was just like so blatant and so egregious. And like, we have already talked about this. So uh, I mean, we don't need to go into it. But I can I just wanted to say like that, that first time when you feel it, you're like, oh, okay, it kind of makes you recalibrate your relationship to that um, type of media a little bit. And I think one of the things that I wanted to also pick up on from Marcia's message before we go into like the specifics of the shows is that she mentioned that for her drama is uh, an escape from a lot of the realities of living as a racialized person in a uh, you know, like a white supremacist society. And I have also felt that a lot of times. Like, I think one of the reasons that I love Korean drama is that it's a show that's full of people of color. um, And that wasn't really available to us growing up. And it's starting to become a little bit more available now. Um, It's still hard to find. But like, I'm talking about like in American media, which I've been, and Canadian media, which I've been exposed to the most growing up because that's where I grew up. But I also... I want to kind of relate this to what we were talking about earlier about wanting your art to not be political. And I just want to point out that it's not the same thing because wanting your art to or your entertainment to not bother you by reminding you about or not wanting that experience to be ruined by remembering that people are being harmed by it is not the same thing as wishing that you wouldn't have to deal with the kind of discrimination and racialization and stereotyping that you have to in your daily life every day all the time for as long as you can remember I think that's very different and so I definitely understand that feeling of like oh this is an escape where I don't have to like this is a space where I don't have to think about that and I don't have to worry about that and wonder if the next scene is going to bring me (laughs) a kind of experience that I've been like having to brace myself for my whole life and I just want to here I just want to like plug um an episode of my one of my favorite podcasts called Code Switch And they do, they did an episode, I think, pretty close after, I want to say it was like after the 2016 presidential election here, where they talked about how being a racialized person, they've done studies now where it actually like causes PTSD, like over a lifetime. And so even though like, it's not necessarily like one big traumatic experience, the way we often talk about PTSD, but a lifetime of facing racism can also give you PTSD. And I think that that's really something that makes me think about our past conversations about how for a lot of people they came to k-drama because they were going through some type of trauma or that k-drama helped them deal with some type of trauma or it helped them heal from some kind of difficult situation in their life so i'm just i don't know i guess i was just thinking about how like it it kind of makes me sad in a way that sometimes this thing that we found that's helped us through a lot of really tough times is, at least for me personally is now can also present a minefield the same way. Yeah, yeah. Like it, I, and I don't want to, you know, like we'll talk about positive representations too. So I don't want to, like, you know, paint all K drama with the same brush. And there's definitely a lot of really great things about K drama that I still love. I'm not going to abandon it anytime soon.
1: Um, but that's just something
0: that I've been reckoning with.
1: It's that inner tension, isn't it? When you're like, you need to be braced for what's going to come. And right. I think I f- I feel that constantly with Western media. Constantly, you know, I I cannot innocently and uncynically start something that is made, for example, a British TV show or an American TV show, I can't start that from a level of a kind of a zero. I can't go in at zero and be like, Mm -hmm. you know, this is going to be great. I have to go in sort of bracing myself for, okay, let's see what's going to happen. And, you know, when it gets bad, you're just like, I can't watch this anymore. And to find yourself in that same situation in what you consider your safe space, that's uh, that's definitely something that takes adjusting. And I, I can imagine, I mean, I don't need to imagine. I I can feel that way myself when that's happened. And like, for for example, whenever a show, a, a K-drama does a Middle Eastern setting, I, it hasn't got to the PD, uh, PTSD point yet, which I have with like um, Western media. But I, I am always like, I'm going to hold myself back a little bit and be like, okay, let's see. Let's see how you do this. Mm-hmm. before I can commit emotionally to a show. Also, I wanted to pick up on another point that a really good point that Marcia makes, which is that, you know, how do you get around the problem of bad rep? By having no rep. So is having bad rep better than having no rep? Or like, you know, what's the answer there? Like are we can we give dramas the space to have bad rep, but we just give feedback or do dramas have to be forced into a place where they don't do rep for fear of offending? I mean, are you asking a
0: question or is that a rhetorical
1: question? I'm not sure if you have an answer. I'm interested, but you know.
0: I mean, I've been talking a lot, so unless Boroma has a, an answer, I also have an answer. But Borma, do you want to go
2: first? I don't have an answer.
0: You don't have an answer? <laughs> um, I don't. No, I don't think that the answer is no rep. I think the answer is more of the positive rep that we have been getting in some dramas. It's just, and I and I think maybe I'm a little bit more optimistic about this. Strangely, even though like on some level, I'm a more jaded K-drama watcher because I've been watching them for like 11 years at this point. But in other senses, I think it makes me more optimistic because I came into this fandom when Boys Over Flowers was first airing and I have seen how... The portrayals of relationships between men and women have evolved in the last eleven years. Oh my god, so much. Yeah, and I mean, there are still you know like the Kim and Sooks of the world who are really holding on to those like regressive gender norms <laughs> and dynamics. And I mean, there are definitely still a lot of problematic things that we see in K dramas and like. Our listeners sent a lot of those things. And I mean, we agree with you, like the risk grabbing and the lack of consent. And and I mean, that's like continuously an issue. But now we also have a lot of shows where writers are doing like amazing, nuanced, like complex portrayals of women and women's relationships. So like, I have hope. And you know, like before this year, I would never have expected a drama like Itaewon Class, which is, you know, we're going to talk about it quite important in quite a few ways. So... I have hope. And I think that the answer is to involve the people who you're portraying in actually making what you're making, instead of making them the subject of something where they're not involved in the making of that, you know? I said that in a really confusing way, but I mean, it's like having representation um, behind the camera
2: and not just in front of the camera. Yeah, involve them as part of your crew. Get get real, uh, what do you call them, members of the group that you're trying to represent have have like a focus group thing I mean come on that we know you can do better Korean dramas
1: I think it's worth adding also that because I mean we talk about K-drama like as as a block but actually K-drama also is not a monolith and we say this mm-hmm. about like so many other things mm. but K-drama is not a monolith. Every show has a different a production team attached to it. They have different writers, they have different companies and uh, sponsors and all and, and which means that they also have diverse interests uh, mm-hmm. in, in the sense of like you know financial interests and political messaging and a regulatory interest and all of those things so each drama you do on one level need to treat them as individuals, but we can also make generalizations about them. Like, for example, we're talking about focus groups and consulting and research. We have dramas that are contemporaries to Backstreet rookie. I mean, you know, Crash Landing on you happened not very long ago. And we we know that they consulted with North Koreans to accurately portray like life in North Korea and just the general environment and just to, to make that authentic and real and it was quite a scholarly undertaking in, in parts. So we know that some dramas can do that and we know that some dramas don't. Right. I guess we want to create a standard.
0: Yes. Like Crash Landing on You had multiple North Korean defectors who were consultants on the show. They had a screenwriter. One of the screenwriters was a North Korean filmmaker who had defected from North Korea like I think 10 years ago or something. So like I and I think and I was reading it's the most nuanced portrayal of North Koreans that South Korean television has ever seen. Yeah. So so like there are trends and there are things that are changing and um I think it's a valuable conversation to have, and I totally agree with you, Saya, that every, every dharma is its own um, individual project, but it exists in this sort of like larger ecosystem of trends
2: and societal forces that are always moving. There is something um, that I want to dive into a bit about Backstreet Rookie, uh, a defense that I've repeatedly read <laughs> whenever someone criticizes uh, the character Dalshik's portrayal. And um, to give you context, if you haven't watched Backstreet Rookie, lucky you. But also <laughs> uh, to give you context, so Dalshik's character is very much a part of the original uh, source material, and uh, he is a webtoon artist. He's the best friend of the uh, of uh, Ji Book's uh, character, so best friend of the male lead, and he's a webtoon creator. And he's an erotic webtoon creator who wants to write romance, but his editor won't let him. So he's under a lot of pressure. That's his general character arc. So that is not the problem. We understand what the arc of the character is. And as the show goes in further, you can feel sympathetic towards him and his position as a writer who's being pressured by his editor. We get that and how the world views him as someone who writes erotic webtoons. Okay, that's not the issue. The issue is how he's presented visually. The first time we see him, <laughs> if you've read Sarah's article, she's described it in a very restrained manner, but it, it gives you an idea. He's wearing uh, this, I, I don't, I'm pretty sure that's a wig. Um, not just that the actor is wearing a wig, but that the character is wearing um, a wig. So that's, it. it's supposed to make him look like Bob Marley, something I did not know until um, commenters under the you know, Dramas Recap uh, started talking about that. Uh, it's not a reference that I, as an international audience and a very casual listener of reggae music would instantly recognize. I don't know about you guys. Uh, did the did his general costume and his hair give you guys any idea that this was supposed to be an ode to Bob Marley?
0: Um, well, he shows up in the next scene with like some Jamaican themed t-shirt. So I kind of got that a little bit from that Jamaican flag themed stuff
2: they did like did you think of bob marley when you saw that because all i thought was like he could have been fan of a jamaican football team for all all i knew because i did not connect it with the singer at all yeah well i mean
0: i don't know if i thought about bob marley but like clearly he calls himself reggae boy and he has the dreads so i mean i got that general impression
1: so i didn't right i would never have got that reference so if you're going to make references you need to In this situation, it can't be so oblique. It needs to be a really, someone in text needs to say
0: that. And then we'll be like, oh, okay, we get it. To be fair, I think that Bob Marley is like a pretty familiar reference to Korean people. Um, But I understand what you're saying.
2: So I looked up how popular Bob Marley is uh, in Korea, and like decently popular as a as since you know reggae music is pretty well known in uh, Korea, and maybe uh, domestic audiences would get that reference. So um, it's fine if international audiences don't, and if domestic audiences does that's great okay so so far you have this character who imitates the dress and the hair um, and the general i don't know the, the, his behavior is with the chest thrust out and the general way he carries himself i'm supposing that he's trying to sort of imitate pay or to this singer that he really likes uh, he wants to emulate him that's great I'm in no place to take offense at that. Yeah, That is one aspect of this character. But the other aspect of this character is that he's supposed to be someone who doesn't take care of himself. He stays up all night. He doesn't bathe regularly. He writes porn. i uh, sorry. He Well, yeah, draws porn. I don't know if he writes it. And there are there is constant reference to him. Like, uh, for instance, when Seth Pugh first meets him, she calls him a thing. Till Ji Chang-wook's character, Dae-hyun goes, uh, he's actually Korean. As if... That means Mm. he's not a thing. I'm not entirely sure what what that line was supposed to do, Mm. except make, you know, somehow be like, well, if he's Korean, then he's not a thing. And then uh, a few scenes later, he's sleeping and Sadio's friends come in and kind of examine him. One of our listeners pointed this out because I had kind of forgotten. Um, She wants to remain anonymous, so... Thank you listener so Sebus friends come in and they examine his sleeping form mm-hmm. and they are like well what is this it's um a, an mm-hmm. australopithecus which i think is like a, a extinct man or something yeah like like another yeah, a primitive uh, ancestor of the human species all, basically, almost ape-like which we all know why that's problematic when associated with black men so the issue here is, like, here, he, these, are, these are different aspects. Um, you have this one aspect where this guy is um, in love with Jamaican culture, with reggae. Oh, my God, my dog needs to stop doing that. Okay, he, <laughs> You have this one aspect where this man is in love with Jamaican culture, or at least with reggae and Bob Marley, which is great, What is not a bad thing. You have this other aspect where images, like visuals, like what do you call a fly um, coming out of his head, uh, him, his general unkempt, you know, mien, him uh, just ra- being lazy when he's given a task. It just, the things that we know when thrown at a black man would be brutally racist. You're throwing at a character who has a very direct visual connection with black culture. And somehow, yeah. some people can look at this and be like, well, because he he identifies as a Korean, because he is not a black man, this is not racist. And it almost feels like the show gave themselves a pass. Anybody criticizing it can be dismissed because he's not a black man. He's wearing the costume of a black man, almost literally, but he's not a black man. So even if we say these things about him, we're saying it, uh, they're managing to separate Racist mm-hmm. comments from the characters simply because they cast yeah. a Korean actor.
0: Not only because they cast a not only because they cast a Korean actor, but because the character is not in blackface. But that doesn't mean that it's not a racist portrayal of uh, of racist tropes. You know also. Like I have to say, I, I would have taken
1: far less issue with his image if he hadn't been presented with all of those other qualities as part of that image. Like, you know, if he hadn't been presented as this vulgar, lazy, prurian, mm-hmm. dirty kind of person, if he'd just been a guy in reds, I'd be like, okay, okay, I get you. I mean, I don't know if it's okay or not, but, but when you start associating these negative character traits with this particular visual, you are set, you are setting up a deliberate message, whether, I mean, okay, whether that's deliberate or intentional or not is
0: not the point. The point is you've created the association. Yeah. And they're not only negative, they're not only just negative character traits, they're like negative stereotypes that have historically been associated with, with black people. And so it's not only is it, explicitly saying certain things about um, these markers of black identity, but they're all, it also like in the minds of viewers brings up all these other stereotypes that they already have and just like reinforces them.
2: Yeah. And uh, to bring this back to me again, because it's all about me. When I was watching Strong Woman Dobung a drama that I have so many split feelings about. And we'll come back to it when we're talking about in another segment. You had a character there. I don't know if you guys remember. There was a, a fraud, ascetic character who was fooling this group of gangsters. Mm-hmm. And this guy, he, he was basically pretending to be an Indian yogi. So there is this Korean guy in the drama, who's dressed as a yogi. And for the longest th- time, I thought, okay, so maybe he's he, he is, it's perfectly possible for a Korean to just like go to the Himalayas and uh, decide that he's an ascetic. That's what I thought initially that character was. No, he was pretending to be Indian. And the people around him were buying it. So, you know, Indians, snake charmers and land of yogis. There you go. Turns out at the end of the drama that he was indeed a Korean man, just fooling everybody. And that does not make it any less racist. I can't tell you how much I hated that entire thing. It just it made my toes curl in the worst possible way. So that I distinctly remember that, uh, being angry about it, as if there weren't other things to be angry about. In a drama that also had things that I, I'm really, like, really conflicted about that drama. The other one that I wanted to talk about very quickly, because someone brought it up, uh, was Condé Intern's recent use of a, of Indian uh, cultural tropes in a sort of in-drama ad they did for a noodle, where packaging wears this shirwani, uh, like a groom's garb and <laughs> with a turban like a shiny turban and there is this i think an indian korean actress like she her hindi was appalling so and but her korean seemed fine so I'm, I'm pretty sure she was like brought up in korea both of them speak atrocious hindi and it's awful and cringy but the thing is it's awful in a hilarious way i wasn't offended but another indian pointed out in in comments that i was reading about this ad that they were Personally offended about it, and my reaction to it doesn't invalidate theirs. The thing is, that 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 trope of the Indian wedding, the sort of like loud, colorful, almost ostentatious Indian wedding, that's that's very popular in one of dozens, I don't know, scores of cultures that make up India my own culture, which is Bengali, we don't have big, loud, colorful weddings. Our weddings are relatively quiet. Yeah, quieter. that's us. That's my, <laughs> that's my ethnic group. That's my cultural, right. linguistic, South Asian group. We do this. Uh, An- Anisa, yeah, you get that. The, the whole, like, <laughs> but you know what? That's exactly the thing. The Punjabi culture, it does do things, like, loud and colorful and bright, and that has taken over the imagination of Bollywood, and therefore the rest of the world when it thinks of of India. So that's what Condé Intern used. The re- reason I wasn't mad about it, for one thing maybe it wasn't hitting me personally because I'm not Punjabi, I'm Bengali. This is not a direct assault on my culture, quote-unquote. But the other thing is that I just found it funny because I've seen ads like that in India. <laughs> like slightly older ads where things were a little more garish and the dialogues were really cringy. And we grew up watching them. So this kind of felt like it harkened back to that. And I don't know if that was deliberate or not. So I, I didn't find it all that. And it, but there was this really awkward park in And it was not like Indianness was a garb he was putting on. It was clearly supposed to be a cameo in an Indian ad. He was neither appropriating my culture, nor was he... Was he... The thing is that I didn't think that he was mocking it. I thought it was something that Indians in Korea could find funny. However, if there is an Indian in Korea who has to deal with colleagues who think that that representation is an accurate representation, then that's, that's problematic. That's an issue. And I can completely understand people feeling attacked by a representation like this.
0: Yeah, I didn't actually, I've seen like a screen capture from this, but I didn't actually watch it because I didn't realize that we were going to be like bringing it up today. So I can't tell you whether as a Punjabi, someone of Punjabi heritage, I would have found it offensive. Can you go watch it right now?
2: Look for hot chicken noodle packaging.
0: Oh, I found it. Okay, I'm watching it now. Oh, the Hindi is really, uh (laughs) yeah. Okay, so that was actually hilarious. I think what... My context, though, in this situation is that I have also grown up as a diasporic South Asian. I've grown up, like, going to Pakistan and watching these, like, extremely cheesy Indian and Pakistani ads that are very similar to this. So it reminds me of those. So I feel like... I mean, they tried a they lot. Did. Like, they're using the language... It seems correct to my ears, even though their
2: pronunciation is so not bah great. So Park Hyunjin's pronunciation is actually really good. It's it's the actress. It's good, I can make out what she's saying.
0: Yeah. So like, clearly, there's a lot of effort. There seems to be sincerity. Yeah. The
2: costumes it are does pretty. Does have like an aesthetic?
0: Yeah. But then I also understand that maybe my perspective is a little different from somebody like who grew up there in Korea. You mean? Yeah. Of course. No, no, no. To somebody who grew up in India or Pakistan because like as a Punjabi, because my experience as a diasporic (laughs) Punjabi is like, I also mock the things of my motherland's culture, you know what (laughs) I mean? In a loving way. (laughs) So I don't know if like that feels very tied to your own identity. It might be offensive. I wouldn't be able to say, but... To my perspective, it seems like they did put a lot of effort and affection and they tried hard not to not to be offensive, but to kind of copy the aesthetic of something that the domestic audience would already be familiar with. But I also don't want to invalidate
2: anybody else's opinion or their reactions. Yeah, that's kind of how I feel as well. Like I'm trying to understand if. Why I am not feeling offended. Now, that's probably a bad way to phrase it. Why aren't you feeling offended by this thing that has happened? That's not how you should approach anything. But um, because a few people have said that they didn't like Mm. this. And it's cringy. I do have something to add with Mm. this because
0: I think with the Korean context in particular... There has been a history um, of a couple of K-pop artists appropriating Indian culture and like sacred aspects of Hindu culture in particular in a pretty offensive way. If you want to look up the incident with Ihyori, you can. That happened a few years back. And the other context that I think is important is within Korean society, people who come from South Asia are not seen as desirable migrants mm. necessarily. Yeah. A lot of them are migrant workers. They're not necessarily treated very well. For a lot of migrant workers, become because they come, and I think they just recently changed this policy, but for a long time, they would have to come on this employment contract that it basically either they would have to allow their employers to abuse them without fighting back mm-hmm. Or they had the choice to come undocumented, you know, like, so either you're under a sort of immigration visa that is so harsh and puts so much power in your employer's hands that you are really open to a lot of abuse, or you basically take the risk of coming as an undocumented person. So like, in that context, I think it could feel different to see something like this versus if you feel...
2: Respected and sort of embraced by culture. So that's all.
0: That's all I want. Yeah. To say.
2: Again, I, I I understand that I might not uh, represent all Indian perspective everywhere. That would make. (laughs) No, (laughs) really? That, well, that's your job on this podcast. You're not allowed to do anything else. (laughs) You're the Indian one. (laughs) As someone who's grown up seeing some really ridiculous ads in my own country, it this didn't, I, the first time I saw this, it was forwarded to me by another Korean drama watching Indian friend, Rimi, who's been on the podcast and both of us were just cringing and laughing at this. And I'm not sure that either of us felt like even a spick of like offense or anger at it. We were just like, it's cringy why? But that's it and now that I'm re-watching yeah. it I'm just I'm just finding it funny, that's all
0: So I guess the, our conclusion is that there's room for nuance in this
2: conversation There is, absolutely, we're um, not, we're not it's it's out there to be outraged by everything ev- everywhere, it's, that's not our job and that would be exhausting So, uh, Saya, since you're the only one who's actually watched Condé Intern, what's your opinion about the ad um, in context of the drama, like how did it deal with Indian people outside the ad and do you think it was mocking them or do you think it was just funny uh, and cringy like we did?
1: Well it didn't make any further appearance or impact on the story in the rest of the drama so it was just that one moment. I also personally did not find it offensive. I actually found it really entertaining and sort of it felt inclusive in a weird way. I don't know if that makes sense partly because it set up a particular storyline which was that they were selling a product to an Indian market and the, the <laughs> Indian distributors had gotten back to them and they were like, we want you to do this ad. So they were like... They like they were quite like discombobulated by that, and they were like, "Why are we the people to do this ad? This is not our wheelhouse and so then part of creating the ad was meant to be awkward, and I think they were making fun of themselves in that, and I guess a large part of why I didn't find it so offensive or offensive at all was that I didn't feel like they were making fun of Indians or, That's how I or as well, yeah anyone on that side they were making fun of themselves and I think self-deprecatory humour is always welcome.
2: When I was watching it I felt like I was included like I was invited to laugh at them as well as... Right,
1: exactly. Exactly. It asks you as the Indian (laughs) onlooker look at how silly we are being.
0: It also kind of does that thing where like I think this was something that I really appreciated when I was watching Misang. In Misang, they worked for an international trading company, and they just kind of incorporated this global customer base into the way that they talked about their customers and the, what the way they talked about their work. So there was one part where they're like, Oh, well, it's Ramadan right now. So you need to do this and this in your work. And here's what you need to respect. And I was and they were just treated like very normal. They didn't make a big deal out of it. There wasn't like this. Oh, my God, these foreigners, they're so crazy. Why do we have to like deal with their wit? It was just like, okay, the business here, you know, in China, you have to do like Guangxi. And then in Muslim countries, like you have to be respectful of like, their somewhat different calendar, you know, like, it was just traded really normally. Um, and I didn't watch gunday Intern, but it sounds like they were just like, oh, well, this yeah. is a different region where we also have customers. So like, let's just do it. Let's just do what they want us to do. Especially
1: in the real-life context of Korea having a lot of international relations in terms of trade and business. For example, they do supply a lot of food products to Eastern Asia. Um, in Malaysia, Indonesia, their ramyun is hmm. really popular. I can go to H Mart and I Choose the halal and ramen, and I choose the halal kimchi because it's got that little halal. Label. I mean, it's something you do yeah. for business and it's reasons. And also
2: massively imported uh, for uh, the northeastern population in my own country. They love Korean food, so much of it comes through that region. So. If, a, if such an ad is made, it would be made to the Korean drama fans of this country, a lot of whom reside in the Northeast, who watch Korean dramas and other East Asian dramas avidly. That actually, um, I'm glad you uh,
1: raised that because that reminds me that they had um, a conversation about this, which was not the ad, mm. but when they were discussing the product, they were like, this needs to be vegetarian because this region is possibly your biggest vegetarian market in the world.
0: And therefore you and have And that was to- a big part of the ad too. They were like, it tastes like chicken, but there's no actual chicken. She was like, oh my God. You know? <laughs>
2: <laughs> but i have to tell you the northeastern area that i'm talking about in india they are not vegetarian at all oh is it <laughs> but but I, I the thing is that the north uh, eastern areas that i'm talking about the northeastern states of my country i i wouldn't say that they are primarily vegetarian that would be the heartlands um even i am not a vegetarian which actually brings me to weird segue but which brings me to a bit of a minority representation thing that um I want to talk about in my own country. So we have, pardon my French, crap representation when it comes to, again, the northeastern states. We kind of treat them like they aren't Indian. So if you have citizens from those states coming and working in Delhi or Calcutta or Bombay or Bangalore, like people often talk to them, like, first of all, they'll speak to them in English. They'll ask them if they're Chinese or Nepali or, you know, basically treat them as if they are foreigners. And these people aren't foreigners, they've grown up in this country, they're nationals, and it's like a constant struggle for them to prove their own nationality in their own country. It's it's horrible. So, this is this really cool Netflix drama that I saw recently called Axon, which does representation right. And it's kind of funny and heartwarming and also shows the struggle of Northeastern citizens in one of the heartland cities. I think it's based in Delhi. And how sort of the majoritarian mindset looks at them and treats them. And it, it's based over this dish that they are trying to prepare. And it's, it's funny nice. and it's nice and it's representation done right. Of course it is because it's created by someone from that state. How do you spell that? A-X-O-N-E. Thanks for the recommendation.
1: That's a great recommendation. And also, I think it's a good yeah. moment to highlight why own voices representation is important as well. Like no one's going to tell that story the way an own voice rep will.
0: Yeah, so I guess moving on uh completely from own voices representation i just wanted to bring up the fact that um since we are talking about race um i also want to mention how white people are represented in K um actually as one of our listeners fahmina pointed out often white characters get more roles and more speaking lines in those roles than foreign actors of color and often these characters are associated with wealth power and education Though not necessarily goodness the way they are in like Euro-American media, but they do have this status that often is not given to other actors of color, except I think with an exception of like Arab sheikhs with like the whole, you know, they have the whole headdress and the...
1: yeah and occasionally you have, like, CEOs.
0: Occasionally you'll
1: have them being, like, Chinese or Japanese or Arab. Very occasionally.
0: Yeah, or they're, like, Eastern European, but they're supposed to be American and they're English. Like, you're supposed to not notice that they're not
1: actually American when they speak oh English. Oh, my God. That is...
2: Oh, they work with what they have.
0: Yeah, exactly. You're like, white guy, yeah, they're all interchangeable. <laughs> it's okay. I also wanted to mention a notable exception, um, which Black Girl Soul mentioned on Twitter, that the parent company of... The company that is sort of like the established mainstream Google representative in Search WW Unicon is actually a black woman. So like when she comes from the US to tell them off or whatever, um, and she she has an American accent or maybe Canadian, but no, it sounds American to me. Yeah, she was a good actor. She was a black woman. I was like, this is amazing. Like another reason why Search WW is very very worth the watch. But yeah, and also I wanted to uh, remind. of the point that Refresh Demon made on the episode that he guested on when we talked about Parasite, which was a great episode. He gave us a lot of really great insights about Korean film. Um, But he also mentioned that one of the things in Parasite that you'll notice is that English is used as a marker of class and privilege. And so people often deliberately use English to show how, like, basically their status. So I just wanted to
3: bring that in. Yeah.
1: Just a quick drama reference to to that same idea. Just so that we can situate it. Because we have seen it, for example, in uh, Crash Landing on You. Uh, was it so- uh, Soji-hae's mum? That was like a North Korean family. They'd be mm. constantly dropping English. She was constantly dropping English phrases. And it was hilarious. And it was done for humor and effect. But also, yeah. it did have... That was the point of it also. like uh, It was a comment on, on her no, social status. but that's status. also true. I,
2: mean, I don't know how much you guys would have um, uh, experienced this yourself. But me living in um, India... Uh, given my English medium background and uh, the fact that I speak in English at home 70% of the time, probably. I mean, it's always like casual casual conversation is mixed in with like Bengali or Hindi, but majority of my speech is probably English. So whenever I'm I'm talking to someone, it, it takes me a moment to change my language to the vernacular. So often when I'm speaking really fast I tend to speak in English and I've seen people less fluent than me be affected by that not like intimidated or anything it's not that it's not that daftly blatant it's it's like it's a small thing and I'm treated with a little more respect than somebody who would not who who's not as proficient in English in in a situation you know like in a situation where maybe I'm trying to negotiate something maybe I'm trying to persuade so there is power and actual power in being proficient in this language and so every day I'm very grateful for my English medium um, education knowing what a huge privilege it is Mm. just to be proficient in this language in this country and of course then there is the other level where I can work internationally thanks to my proficiency. Yeah I think it's very similar in Pakistan
0: definitely that there is a uh, definitely an element of privilege and the, and the, not only in your opportunities, but just in the cultural associations of somebody who could speak English, who went to an English language school. And often that comes along with not only did you go to a private English medium school, but you also had the opportunity to study abroad in like England or the US or Canada. And then that adds like another layer of like how people sort themselves into social classes.
2: Uh you know a really good use of this like the English language uh, in a Korean drama was in a moment at 18 whereas usually you have in teen dramas you have like a character speaking English kind of to show how either good at studies they are or as as a class thing. Here it was a class of students who were in the English language class and their teacher is this very kindly sweet homeroom teacher and this one character is trying to help her partner become more proficient by they're supposed to give a speech in fully in English and it has to be about themselves. So both of them they write down their essays it's in English and they speak it out and it's It's done really nicely and the way they use this that the difficulty so the girl who's really proficient is one who's been learning english since she was in kindergarten her proficiency is because she had the privilege of all of the years of learning and the boy who isn't proficient is because he's been shunted from school to school he's an underprivileged kid so you're showing that and Then, then there is this layer of them talking about themselves, explaining a concept about themselves that they couldn't do in their own mother tongue, but they could in English. And it was done really nicely, especially with the girls part when she was talking about living her mother's life and not living her own dream. And, like, the lines of the essay were shown on the screen as she was speaking. It was very impactful. I thought that was one of the few instances where the use of English, the class difference, their proficiency, all of that stuff was done. It just shone beautifully. And it actually made sense mm. that the students were, you know, their various level of proficiency was being shown in the drama. Okay, I think we moved No, on. no, that was really, really we interesting. About
0: I appreciate that. So, I think... We basically covered all the points that we wanted to do talking about race, except for um, I wanted to talk about some positive. We've mostly just talked about negative representations, but I wanted to talk about some positive representations of black people and of other groups so that we can end on like a slightly happier note. So do you have some...
2: Some examples you'd like to bring up? Well, of course, the uh, search WWW CEO. Yeah, that's like, that's the main one that comes to mind instantly. Mm. And Itaewon Glass did a good job, uh, both with trans representation. Well, uh, adequate job with trans representation, as well as having a Black character.
0: Can we, t- can we talk a little bit about Itaewon class
2: first? I watched like 12 episodes. <laughs> so I've just watched the first, what, four episodes. So I just got a glimpse of the dynamics, not... Uh, Yeah, Itaewon class is kind of
0: one of the themes is like these outcasts that society doesn't accept. And they all kind of live in Itaewon, which has historically been associated with like, uh, the gay community and the international community. And so a lot of those people are kind of on the outskirts of mainstream society. And like, you know, the hero is poor, and he's got a criminal record. And then he hires um, a trans woman and a black man and like, another ex con that he was in jail with. And I think that one of the interesting things about when they first hire the black man is they hire him specifically because they have a prejudice about him that he's going to be able to speak English. Um, but he can't speak English. (laughs) So they hire him based on his look. And then they, and then he's like fluent in Korean, but his English is not good because he's from like France or something. Like he grew up, he did not grow up in an English speaking country. So like, it was a clever way for them to kind of show people's prejudices about black people. Not like the uglier stereotypes, but this thing of like, yeah. oh, well, all, all black people are American. They can all speak English. But then later on, they also have, there's Yiso, the young character who eventually falls in love with Paksojoon, which like, I have a lot of thoughts about that, but let's not go into it now. Yeah. She is yeah. actually <laughs> kind of terrible. Like she's prejudiced against the trans character in a really horrible way she's also like prejudiced against the black guy so that is not good but also then there's a storyline with him meeting his his grandmother who initially like refused to accept her son marrying a black woman and like that's why they left korea and now she's like really sad and she feels really bad about it and he reunites with his grandmother and it's like pretty overwrought but it's it's nice i i I liked that story of reconciliation. Like, it was kind of like a very facile treatment of what the solution for racism is. But I still appreciated that they had this character who was actually playing, you know, himself, his own identity, you know, like they actually hired someone and he was yeah. like, not a main character. Yeah, he had a storyline. He wasn't a main character, but he was one of the main supporting cast. So, yeah, I think not a not a bad job. Yeah his acting wasn't great though poor guy <laughs> he was very green i, I felt for him <laughs> and i think saya you have an example too right baby steps yes there's
1: not a lot to say about the character in my stranger i'm so sorry i can't remember his name right now the actor's name is joel roberts and he appears as mm. a convenience store worker he's there in the and uh, she ju- he just turns up every so often he's, he's just a character he doesn't have an arc but he's there and uh, I don't know, maybe his entire screen time in the entire show might add up to like 20 minutes yeah, if Yeah, and being
0: treated as a regular person by the heroine and just as her friend that she talks to occasionally.
1: Exactly. And like without having to talk about his race as well. I think that's also important at some point. I mean, sometimes it's useful to actually take that head on as they do with um, the character in E2-1 class. But sometimes, I mean, yeah. we need... Both of we need many types of representation. Like one type isn't sufficient, and and that's the whole point of the representation argument is that things become stereotypes, uh, negative stereotypes, when you only present a certain type of person in one way or two ways, and neither of them are good. Whereas when you can represent those people in multiple ways, in in multiple uh, stations and situations, then you begin to like the the whole flattening of character to accommodate stereotypes you begin to undo that and that's
0: that's what makes it important to Um, have there's also a really great interview with the first latino actor in a K drama which i will find and link in the show notes i cannot remember right now but um, it was a great interview and i want to i want people to be able to see that so i will share that we talked about his casting and then i later watched an interview with him in advance of the of the premiere of the drama but i will i will definitely link it in the show notes yes so his name is kristen burgos and he actually learned korean while he was working in the mexican mines from his co-workers who were um, migrant workers from korea and so he like learned the language from them and then he decided i'm gonna go and have a career in korea and now he's like he speaks Korean like a native. Um, and he has, has, like a television career and a musical career. Like he's pretty great, but I will, I will link his, that interview with him. It's an Asian boss interview. It's very interesting. And he's the first Latino actor to be cast. And it was, I think it was a web drama. So it wasn't like a big mainstream drama, but you know, still a first. So wanted to call that out.
2: And, um, uh, we, I think guys, we already, uh, spoke about a few, mm, good representations, like instances of our, you know, neutral representations in other dramas. You guys spoke about Missing and uh, about Vagabond. I think Sai mentioned Vagabond in your long piece, right? I was thinking about Vagabond had a little bit of a mixed,
1: um, like it started off a little bit dodgy and then it found its footing. Yes. The, The thing is, obviously we don't watch every single drama. I would be interested in hearing from our listeners and readers about any other positive representations that they've seen because it would be actually it would be quite nice to build a little not necessarily a database but like go leave a comment um at the on the essay and tell us about yeah. you know the good and the bad that you've seen because that would really help us to get a fuller picture of how work. we
0: over. had an email from someone who was like i appreciate that you're also including listeners who aren't fans of human
2: interaction so we got you introverts <laughs> contact us in whatever way you feel comfortable with yeah. So, I think that brings us to part uh, end of part 1 of this discussion. I think our discussion of Etewan class is a good
0: segue in the next section that we want to talk about, which is also representation, but um, we wanted to talk about LGBTQ representation, which is something that we had thought about and that's also some listeners brought up. And so I think we can start with going a little bit more into detail of the character Hyuni in Ita- Ita- Itaewon class who is represented as a trans woman, although she's played by a cis woman. But yeah, so the name of the actress that plays Hyuni is Iju Young. She played one of the heroine's best friends in Weightlifting Fairy. Yeah, I think it was either episode five or six, but she, um, I mean, spoilers for the drama, but she receives an opportunity to cook on a TV show. And there's like some big prize and also like the promotion that the restaurant, which is really struggling at that point, could get. So even though she's nervous about it, she goes on TV and, you know, like mm. she becomes really popular. People really love her. And then somebody finds out Somebody posts online that she's trans. And so there's like a huge backlash against her online. Mm. And then like, I can't remember the details. But basically, like, there's an issue. And they're like, Oh, well, how can we have her on the show? Like, she shows up on set, everybody starts whispering. And then like, some people from the staff are like, we can't have you being on our show anymore. Because like, you didn't tell us about this. We can't have you on TV, blah, 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 like all this Really terrible stuff. And so she gets upset and then Poxygen basically tells her, he's like, you don't have to do this. If you don't feel comfortable and if you're upset, like, don't, you don't have to do this. And he gives this really moving speech to her about how basically like that he believes in her and that he, you know, that he loves her and, um, he's her friend no matter what. And these these people's opinions don't matter. And if she doesn't feel happy to do this, then she can just walk off and he doesn't, he doesn't care. Like even though they would lose the opportunity, whatever, like he doesn't care. But then she decides that she wants to do it. So she comes back and she talks about it on camera and basically says like, yeah, I'm a transgender and this is who I am and I'm a cook and like, I'm proud of myself. I'm not ashamed. And like, I'm not saying it right. And I I wish I had like the dialogue in front of me, but I think that as much as I can say of not having that experience myself, like I found it to be a respectful representation. There is definitely the layer of not having an actual transgender actor play that role. But I also understand that given the climate in Korea, it might not actually be safe for someone to go on TV who does have that identity. I don't know the details of what it's like on the ground in Korea, but I know that it tends to be... I guess the the transphobia is pretty bad. I mean, it's bad here too. But I think whatever your feelings are about whether that actor should have been transgender or not, like I did think that the writing was really good in the sense of um, really accepting her as a full person that's not her only storyline she also has a storyline where like it's all about like her journey to becoming a better cook like that's also part of her storyline so it's not like this identity was like the only thing that was going on with her character in the whole show and that was like her only reason but then they also i feel like they did a pretty respectful representation of that um there's also a storyline where like the heroine tells Poxojun that like he has to fire her because she's bad for business I was like, really? This is the heroine? But also he's like, no, you can leave instead. (laughs) So that was pretty great. (laughs) So yeah, I mean, I have some issues with that drama in general, but I think that aspect was probably the most moving for me. And I think they did a really pretty good job with that. Um, but I would be interested to hear what other viewers thought about that scene as well and that representation.
2: Yeah. I actually can't think of too many instances of really good uh, trans representation in Korean dramas. I think uh, the one other representation that I can think of is E.L. E.L. was the mm-hmm. actor and she did this very small, was it a? Korean I feel like medicine? I've seen this drama, but I can't remember which one it was, but I have seen it. I can't remember either, but the thing is that she did this character who was basically a trans woman and she had run away from her family who were abusing her uh, physically abusing her and like blocking her up and stuff like that so. I'm pretty sure it was EL who had uh, done that. I, I, I seem to remember her face uh, in that. So again, you know, a victim. And it, it was nice because it was like a sympathetic angle. And um, But again, that that's honestly the only other role that I can think of where a neutral to positive representation had been done. And there may be more, again, uh, listeners, if you know of instances, please inform us because, of course, we haven't seen all dramas. We don't remember or know about all good mm-hmm. representations that have been done by K-dramas. However... I can think of bad representations or uh, very cliched representations where a trans character is made into the uh, villain because they are perverted slash jealous or just, yeah. Like, for instance, Graceful Family. Um, Oh, I didn't end up watching that. uh, (laughs) I watched one episode and then I didn't end up finishing it. The thing is that overall, Graceful Family, I liked it. And also, mind you, Graceful Family does this balancing act where they're actually sympathetic towards her character, mostly. But so this, this character is dumb. I, 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 oh, man, why do I never remember the actor name? It's, it's the second lead, like the petulant boy from Queen in Hun's Man. I have no memory of this character. <laughs> I loved him. Han Dong the Min. ex-boyfriend, yeah, right? Han right? Min, yeah. yeah, yeah, him. <laughs> Kim Kim Jin-woo. Uh, So Kim Jin-woo does this character of this, I think, the eldest brother of the family. Eldest of the second eldest. um, And he's like the favorite of the family and all of that stuff. He's very stuck up, really uptight about his reputation and all of that. And he's going to take over the company. He has a secret, which is that he's actually a trans woman. And the way the secret is revealed is just done so badly in that our protagonists basically investigate, like they're trying to find dirt on him. And they find out that he goes to this apartment where he there are women's clothes and stuff. And they're like, ooh, he's having an affair. But no, it turns out that he tries on the clothes and stuff. And then he's forcefully outed to his family. It's not, the protagonists themselves don't want to do it, but then they it ends up happening. They They tell somebody who out him, which is just as bad as doing it directly. So I'm not sure that they can be forgiven. So th- there is this actually a really great moment where our quote unquote villain, this second eldest son character, he's supported by our main villain who says, I don't care how you identify, I will support your claim to the company. And I really liked that because at the end of the day, it came down to his efficiency as a director, or, or I don't know what his position was, but a CEO. He was the most competent. Therefore, he deserved to inherit. And I like that. But of course, he lost. He didn't just lose. It was devastating all around. His reputation was kind of tattered. A lot of things, that he initially fought back, but then eventually he was proved to be the villain. So he was not painted as a... Villain because he was trans, but it was like his, his revelation of his, him being trans and just them painting the character black because they were suppressed and therefore they lashed out and did something awful was just so intermingled that you can't really, this is your trans representation. He could have had any number of other things that he was, you know, suppressed about, but this is what you chose to do with that storyline. I was really uh, miffed about that ending. The actor was amazing. The storylines were actually handled really nicely. The other characters, the the family members' reactions, they were all very realistic. And the parent you thought would support you ended up being the one who was repressing you all along. All of those elements were done nicely. But there was an overall vein of sexism in the drama that showed itself really clearly through this storyline. So I was not happy with that.
0: I think this kind of falls into this General trend that we see, um, not only with trans characters, but with queer characters in general, where they're sort of non conforming appearance and some of the maybe like the way they don't quite fit into the gender norms that everyone considers to be like proper, it causes them to yeah. be cast as like villains often. Um, like we saw this with Strong Woman Dobang Soon, where there's a really hateful person in the office in the company that treats Dobang Soon really badly. Who is coded as like... I don't know. I don't remember if he's explicitly or not that he's gay. gay. Yeah, I don't remember if it's explicit or not because um, I've blocked out a lot of that drama from my
2: memory. Initially, it was just like the gestures and the clothing and all of that stuff. So that's where the coding comes in. But there were scenes where he was paired with, I think...
0: Park Hyung-Shik.
2: Park Hyung-Shik's secretary. Like, paired as in, like, he was part flirting, part being, like, cast together. It was not even coding. It was very blatant that here's a gay character, so if he's close to a man, of course, he's going to fall for him or, like, he's going to be paired. It's like a very... uh, stereotypical and, and and kind of awful line for it to take. But yeah, it did. However, a good representation of a gay character, and actually Isai was the one who reminded me of it, I'd completely forgotten, was in personal taste.
0: Oh, I think it was Ryu Seung-soo. Yeah, I think I have mixed feelings about personal taste because even though that character was quite sensitively portrayed, I kind of have an issue with the main character using that as like a way to move into a house where women live so
2: that he can like, come there under false pretenses and like be a predator like that was that? awfully done and i'm sorry when i said that there were good representation i did not mean even storyline that was <laughs> terrible <laughs> so yeah you song wrong the thing is his character was treated so nicely in that he was not predatory he genuinely fell in love with Imin e. Ho's character and he was treated like a second lead like you know his emotions weren't really made fun of that I can remember. Of course it's been a while that I've watched but the aftertaste that it left for me as as far as that character was concerned was that the show treated his feelings as genuine and valid and the way Imenho finally turns him down like he finds out and turns him down was also very gently done. So I just, Overall, I really liked how respectfully his character and his emotions were treated. So that's honestly one of the main decent representation of, you know, a a gay character that I can remember. But yeah, no, Lee Ho's storyline, that entire thing, I used to really, really dislike, oh my god. Sorry. Oh, that's loud. That's loud. I said, I'm sorry guys I I'm pretty sure I we'll won't be able to take this out in post, there is a thunderstorm going on in the background, that's what you're hearing the house isn't breaking, it's just a thunderstorm I had really negative feelings towards Songye Jin for the longest time because of how the storyline played out. where E Ho's character was reluctantly playing gay and it was Song Ye Jin who practically fell on him and was like, oh, well, you're gay. You can stay in this house. Let's be best friends. Cause I need a gay best friend. And it just, the entire thing was just awful. I hated it. It was very cringy. I-
1: completely forgot about that part I guess uh, since we've been talking about race it's kind of I mean uh, like the the gay version of blackface like gay face <laughs> is that oh a
0: word God. I'm sure there's <laughs> a I'm sure there's a proper term for it that we just don't know yeah yeah sorry listeners. yeah I'm, no, yeah. No, I'm it's, sorry <laughs> but we we understand what
1: you're saying. A straight character posing as gay where you can use the tropes of being
2: gay. I don't know. No, no, but you're making a very good point. I I completely understand. That is kind of like blackface but with sexual identity. And it's the worst thing because as a straight person pretending to be gay, you can quote-unquote use the advantages of that identity and then shed it the moment it's disadvantageous to you. So it's like the... The worst sort of insult, and they and often these characters use
0: that in order to gain access to spaces that they wouldn't be able to, especially like as a straight man, and and then they use that to their own advantage um, in a way that yeah. someone who's actually in that position probably wouldn't. But then it makes everyone from that marginalized identity look bad much in the same way that we were talking about with blackface. Do you think
1: that it's valid to use a mechanism or a trope like that as a as a plotline?
2: No, no, I don't. Just as, because I used to be perfectly okay with your beautifuls. That entire thing where Park Shin is pretending to be a man, under duress pretty much, and she gains access to this band's dormitory and lives with them. But the thing is, it's an intrusion of their space. And she only has access because she is... Pretending to be a man, so now you're you're basically that. I I used to find that hilarious and fantastic. And honestly, I can't <laughs> say that I'm never going to watch a gender bender, you know, gender bent drama again okay? because I I honestly, it's it's something that just worked for me all of this time. It's only recently that I started seeing the problems. I think with it.
0: also context matters in these kinds of situations because I don't see. I mean, I don't know how I feel about your beautiful at this point because there's we can argue about how much duress she was actually under. Let's just put it that way. But I think if you're looking, for example, yeah, okay. at a drama like Sung Quan scandal, where literally the only way that this girl can get an education is by pretending to be a man and going to a university because, you know, Agreed. education is not accessible to women at that time. That, I find, is very different than somebody who's just doing it for economic gain or, you know, to, like, gain some kind of advantage. So, like, I think the context and, like, the power dynamic really makes a difference.
2: Of course, it matters because that's where intersectionality comes in, like... A, a, a cis man pretending to be a woman or pretending to be gay to make themselves less threatening so they have access to spaces that would otherwise keep them out is, is more predatory than a woman, a cis woman pretending to be uh, a man to gain access amongst men because she is still not threatening to them. It's a huge uh, uh, intrusion of privacy, but the threat level is distinctly low. So there is a difference. And of course, you may disagree with me and I'm happy to listen to the other side of the argument. Maybe I haven't thought of something. But all I'm all I'm saying is that intersectionality matters here.
1: I was going to ask, what does that say about our love of gender benders? But I think you've answered it. The other thing I was going to just throw out there is that we haven't brought up at any point so far in our planning or in our, in our notes or even in our discussion right now
2: is mm. coffee prints. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that that one mm. I didn't even think of that you know but you're so yeah, right I, I, I agree so the, the, oh there are both sides yeah. of it there is the gender pender thing and the whole you, I will love you if you're an alien thing which people swooned over and I always found very odd she is also pretending
0: to be a gay man in the beginning because remember he hires her because he thinks that she's a man so he's like will you pretend yeah. to be my boyfriend I'll pay you And so they go on all these dates and stuff. And then it's so that he won't have to,
2: yeah. I I honestly didn't find that part offensive simply because she's doing it for the pay and like it doesn't harm anyone in her mind because, hey, you assumed I was a man. Okay, a little bit of context here. Until I was in, uh, I was 15. Yeah, I was often mistaken for a boy. It it happened in the most embarrassing situations. Um, I had little to no development happening anywhere. (laughs) So... (laughs) (laughs) I I can understand (laughs) Uh, a woman, um, sort of like a really skinny woman who has really short hair, being mistaken for a very slender young man. It's not unbelievable to me. It's perfectly possible. So for her, because she's poor, to take advantage of this rich dude who wants to pay her for just basically going out... And you know, oh just God. like acting around. I don't see anything wrong with that aspect of it. I got it. She was being opportunistic, good for her. Hustle, man. Yul <laughs> chans character was not the not really the problem. Even though the whole gender bender thing, now I'm kind of questioning my liking for it. I don't think her character was her character was kind of was stuck in a place. She couldn't, she didn't have alternatives. My issue was more with how Gong Yu's feelings were portrayed in the drama. It was that. He had feelings for Yun Chan because he somehow sensed that sh- she was a woman and fell for her. And all his inner struggle and all of that stuff, was was so great for us, because at the end of it, he was like, "I'll love you no matter what you are." He doesn't explicitly say that I, I love you, even though you're a man, and I can't imagine myself being in love with. My- he never really, quote unquote, confesses to being attracted to. Yeah, I mean, he says, "I don't Yun-chan care as a man." Yeah, he says I don't care if you're a man or an alien, but I know what you mean. But that's exactly the thing, right? Yeah. Right, grouping them together. It's, it's not just the grouping, but but that's the loophole, right? He's basically saying I'll I'll love you as a person, no matter what your body is. But what was happening? Th- but what is never acknowledged, and that's perfectly possible. He might be, you know, pan. He might. Oh my God! Will my dog stop shouting? Ever? <laughs> 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 see, I see. I I stop speaking and they stop shouting. It's just. Okay, no. I'm sorry. Just let it let it stay in the background. I can't do much about it. I don't know if I'm explaining this mm. properly. Him grouping, um, uh, you know, like you being a man with alien is not the problem. We all swooned at that because we were like, he loves her despite, you know, she could be anything. She could be a potato sack. He would still love her. Oh. So but, basically,
1: you what you're kind of saying is the fact that he individualized it to her rather than accepting I might be gay. Exactly.
2: And the thing is that is a gay for you trope that. You know, literature suffers for, for a lot. Like, this person is straight as an arrow, but only for this one individual oh, will he bend. I mean, well, that sounds bad. <laughs> will he... <laughs> make an exception. Make an exception. <laughs> that's right. Anyway, so yeah, I, I just... I, I found that that little escape loophole thing a bit.
1: But then also, that was like, what,
2: 2007? Wow. Yeah. yeah. No, so for its time, it was pretty... Yeah,
1: Mm, It was pretty revolutionary for its time And I
2: really liked that they did show Gong Yu's very realistic struggle As someone who's always self-identified As straight, suddenly being Confronted with this situation where He has feelings for a man, that was So realistic, the pain was so realistic I just thought it was, all of that pain Was milked for a heterosexual couple at the end of the day. I didn't find it problematic at all. When I first watched it, it's only in the last few years of reading and watching and listening that I, I'm like, I really enjoyed it. And now I'm feeling bad about that. And that's justified. I should be feeling bad about that.
1: I want to go backwards a little bit back to when you were talking about Graceful Family and how the character was treated there. So in Secret Boutique, which uh last year... I can't remember. Anyway, so Kim tae played a character in that, and he was a main character. And I thought that the way the character was portrayed was very human and very sensitive. And he was revealed quite quickly uh, to be gay. But then, like you described in Graceful Family, he has this thing where people use that against him. So he's also uh, an heir of a company, and he's got like these cutthroat, bloodthirsty siblings who are all trying to get ownership of the company yeah. so they'll do anything to take each other down to to get there so he's in this position where his sister finds out his secret oh, oh everyone's spying on everyone he's like the only good decent person in the family everyone else is awful yeah so what you have is his mum finds out his secret and then his sister finds out and they both threaten him with it and the mum threatens him she's like you know break it off or else you don't inherit so then he's forced into the situation where it's actually quite strange because I don't know what happened. Like, I don't know, did he kill his lover or did his lover commit suicide? Anyway, his lover is dead. So that happens and he comes back. And then Kim Suna's character, she's been in love with him since childhood. She's the one who's trying to get revenge on, on this Chevel family for her own personal tragedies. And... But but she's genuinely in love with him, mm. so she suggests a marriage of convenience uh, or a marriage and we later realize this is a marriage of convenience where the marriage protects his secret and she gets to uh, they both benefit materially from it yeah. although she has a genuine emotional investment and both of them they're actually they're very close friends they're they're very dear to each other and all of that. Mm. But then what happens is the sister she outs him and that's like it. It kind of, it ruins him. And then he runs away. It's just all sorts of terrible things happen. And in the end, basically he's fridged. He's the character who gets the absolute worst things happening to him. Who's the most decent out of everybody. And like, you know, he's too good to live. So he dies. And I feel like this is where stereotypes end. Like if the character is good,
0: they die. Mm. Or they're villains. Yeah, they're not given the respect of being full human beings with, human complexities and human dignity a lot of times.
1: And that's actually what made the character in Personal Taste much better in that he didn't end up dead and he didn't end up a villain, <laughs> although he
0: did end up sad.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I mean second leads are always sad. Yeah, that's just so that's the way it
0: is. Yeah. So speaking of Kim Tae-hoon, and this is a spoiler from a for a currently airing drama, so um, spoilers for Unfamiliar Family, if you don't want to hear this like, skip three minutes ahead. But Kim Tae-hoon actually plays... The oldest daughter's husband in that drama. And, okay. I mean, this isn't a huge spoiler because even when you start the drama in, like, the first couple of episodes, you find out, A, that they're unhappily married. They're kind of sleeping in separate bedrooms. And then you find out pretty early on that he's actually, he's gay and he hasn't told her. Oh! Yeah. Yeah. Same actor. same actor. Yeah. And it's like when he you described everything, I was like, oh, that's quite <laughs> similar. Like his, his family's basically been in denial for many years. And like, even though they kind of knew, his mother is a piece of work. Like, she straight out tells Ju jae character, like, I chose you because I felt like you could handle this because you're like not that emotional. So you can just marry him. And she's like, you don't need to, you know, like break up with him now that you're not that you found out. Just like keep living this way. And she's just like, oh my God. <laughs> but obviously, like, it's very difficult and heartbreaking for Ju Jayan's character because she actually did fall in love with him. But I think what is good about this representation is that neither is he a saint, nor is he a villain. Like, he does some pretty horrible things to her when she first finds out. But at the same time, it's not a black and white thing. Like, yes, it was wrong of him to have lied to her and married her under false pretenses when she actually thought they were, you know, sincerely married. And she was, like, trying very hard to get pregnant, even to the point of, like, doing IVF and all of that. And so, like, part of her pain is, like, all this time I was suffering. Like, she had a miscarriage and all this and, like, you didn't even, you know. So there is that aspect, but it's not linked to his identity. It's more about, like, the actions that he took and... The point they're at now in the drama is they've kind of reached a point of resolution where they kind of both wish each other well. They want to, you know, like they start out as friends. And even at a certain point when the worst of her anger is over, she actually tells him like, there's this really beautiful line, like friends are people who carry each other's sadness on their back. So let's continue to be friends. Like you carry my sadness, I'll carry yours, you know, like as they part ways. It's not that simple. Obviously, there's a lot of complicated Emotions going on here, but I, I liked that. And I, I don't, I haven't finished it yet. I don't think they're going to kill him off. Like, that doesn't seem likely. So, and he's also, he, there's another character in there who is involved with him in this kind of convoluted way that I won't go into, but he's also gay. He also doesn't get treated as like a stereotype, or he just, you know, he's like a side character, he's a real person. With his own yeah. experiences. So, I mean, that drama in general is just like A++ writing. Everyone should go watch it if you aren't already. Yeah, it just treats all of its characters like real human beings with many layers and with motivations that make sense.
2: Yeah. Do you know what one of my favorite representations is uh, of a gay character? Again, second lead Kind of ended up sad, of course. But it was uh, in Reply 1997, which is a drama that's perfect oh, for yeah. so many reasons. <laughs> you had um, uh, the actor Hoya playing. Um, Kang Jun Hee. Kang Jun Hee was just, you know, a really sweet, decent character. He was just in the friend circle. And he was madly in love with Seo In Gok's character as a teenager. And then kind of followed him to the city later on uh, when uh, Seo In Gok tried to enlist. Uh, I think he wanted to become a pilot. Uh, Kang Jun Hee went and tried that as well. And the thing is, it was really sweet. Like, he was always his best friend, his biggest supporter. And he al- also kind of like helped the not helped, but kind of like championed So Ngok's happiness, all of that stuff. But also he was treated as an actual second lead in that his emotions were valid. When So Ngok finally finds out that his best friend of years and years has been in love with him, he's just, it's it's so sad, but it's also like, it's a relief that... It's finally out there and it helps them move on and their friendship completely survives and their friends years... And also a bit of a happy ending because you almost never see this is uh, Kang Jun hee like absolutely towards the end Kang Jun hees character gets into the car of his boyfriend and drives away and that's just like, I love that because he's not left alone. You know what I mean? Because gay characters usually in Korean dramas, they are left alone. They either die alone or they... Oh, oh my God. How did we forget this? A romance uh, is a bonus book. Do you guys remember the background, uh, the, the love story in the background of the gay artist in love with his friend who's been drawing his friend for years mm. and he finally oh. ends up just dying alone? Yeah, I totally yeah. forgot
0: forgotten about that part of the
1: story. Yeah, you, yeah.
2: Have, uh, you had... Uh,
0: Oh, well, I mean, I think you're mixing up two characters, but the character that Yi Jung-suk was taking care of was his teacher. That was a different character. This character is one of the people whose who had like his all of his friend's artwork that he had left to him oh, right and they right go right to right his right house right, and right, they right. kind of catalog it and they put it together and Park Min Young is actually the one who realizes this oh, is no, her
2: private life private this is her private life. life yeah private
1: life. I was like okay. why
0: does uh, this not round 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 sound right yeah. Round yeah. Round yeah. Round so Park Min Young <laughs> is the one who realizes from the perspective of the photographs what the feelings of the photographer actually were and that he was looking right. at his friend right. yeah
2: so i mean i don't i actually don't think that was a negative it was not a negative representation but you know how often you have because in dramas when and this is true of indian cinema as well whenever you have a gay character or a trans character introduced they're introduced for emotional impact and usually uh, to introduce a bit of sadness or poignancy into the story so the entire purpose of their character is look how your sad your life could have been learn something from it and be better which even though private li- her private life did such a good job in other aspects, they also fell into that trap of using their sh- romantic storyline to kind of like push forward our main um, characters. Yeah, I mean, I slightly
0: disagree because I think regardless of, you know, like, whatever somebody's identity is, like, they have the choice whether they want to how they want to express that in the world, right? Like, some people never come out, and that's the choice that they've made. And, you know, I've heard, like, queer scholars and stuff say that, like, you should respect that choice as much as you respect the choice yeah. to, like, come out and live that way as well. And I I also yeah. feel like the, the drama did a good job of kind of portraying it as his own decision, even though, of course, it was influenced by, you know, like his family's potential reactions and society and stuff. And I also didn't get the sense that the friend who he had left behind reciprocated those feelings. I might be wrong. So I think it was just like a really beautiful acknowledgement of that person's you know, like his, his inner life and, and all that. I know it's, it's after his death. So I I completely agree
2: with you. No disagreement there. That's, that's not what I'm getting at. I'm talking about, you know, how like you have constant representation of a certain group of people in only one way. And I'm saying that in countries where homosexuality is viewed negatively, the only way they are allowed to be portrayed in dramas is through tragic storylines. Oh, yeah, it's not like the tragic storylines are not valid. They're absolutely valid and they happen and they should be acknowledged and explored. But if that's the only storyline you ever see, that's, that's what I'm trying to comment yeah, on. Yeah, no, agree. that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, everyone deserves
0: to be represented as their full self. That's true representation.
2: I think
1: it's worth adding that whatever your beliefs are regarding homosexuality or queer identity or any of those things, I don't think that anyone would want to deny those people their humanity, whether or not they agreed with their actions. Because, I mean, I think it's also worth realizing that the K-drama... Viewing a population is widely spread across many different parts of the world where they do have different beliefs, whether those beliefs are justified or not, or whether you agree with them or not, not necessarily relevant to the discussion of whether those people deserve to be seen as full people, as opposed to constantly being boxed into stereotypes or being persecuted or, you know, having only a set number of outcomes that because of being in that box, they can only have those outcomes. Yeah, It's it's the same thing that when we're talking about race rep or any other rep, that people want full story. Absolutely. New ones and,
2: exactly. you know. and to give you just one instance of a, a good, not just representation, an entire drama, because BL dramas and Korea is almost unheard of. You have uh, gay storylines sort of like in background or you have movies that deal with some of these stories. Very few of them have happy endings. But very recently I think there was a wiki original called Where Your Eyes Linger which is basically about these two high school students. They have um, you know so there's a class difference situation going on. It's basically a boys love romance and they are the main leads. It's While it's kind of fluffy it avoids a lot of the stereotypical tropes that you see in such stuff. So yeah, that's. I'm just so happy that this thing exists now. It happened very recently, and I can't tell you of a single other Korean gay drama that has ever had a happy ending. So if uh, anybody's interested in that drama. And finally, just before we kind of like uh, at a point where we will probably wrap up before that, I just want to talk about how how nice it is to have a main lead who's open to analyzing his own prejudices. And we got that last year in Ryan Gold in her private life. And I just I mean, this guy is just he's golden. What is he made of? He's like just, just made of wish fulfillment all over. Yes, no, no real men are like that. But uh, we can enjoy the fantasy. I love the pep talk that he gives himself. Like when he thinks that he's discriminated against two lesbians in his man. He doesn't. He thinks that they're lesbians, and he sort of like gives him a pep, himself a pep talk about uh, and kind of like analyzes his own prejudice. And he's like. I just, I love that because I I wish more people would do that. Yes, he's wrong. He's, he's misidentified them, never went and, and on the other hand, um, I like how his misunderstanding continues because he's trying to be sensitive. He's not going up to them and being like, are you lesbians? <laughs> Come out to me. It's, um, his sensitivity is what continues the misunderstanding. So it just overall I, I thought it's nice to have characters who aren't just going and giving speeches in support of the minority, but actively in their life showing how to be sensitive and just be a good
1: person. And also it was a it was just good storytelling as well because yes. like not only did it accomplish that, but it also gave you this great like the comedic side. It was funny and it was thoughtful. Yeah. And again, it came at nobody's expense.
2: That's exactly what it was. It was at nobody's expense and it was just good to have. Yeah, Good representation of an ally. Yes.
0: And so I think we'll end part one of our sort of broad overview of problematic tropes in K-drama here. I think we, we wanted to do this all in one episode, but clearly impossible because we talk a lot. Um, so <laughs> in the next episode, which will be coming soon... Um, we'll talk about things related to um, like body image, sexism, relationship, ableism. yeah, relationship tropes, and also ableism, which is all stuff that we feel very passionately about. So we're going to need another two hours for that. So <laughs> <laughs> so we'll end this here. And then at the end of that episode, we'll also kind of wrap up our broader conversation about why all of this matters and have some final thoughts on that.
2: Thank you guys That's it. for participating in this and uh, giving us. So much fodder to discuss and uh, let us know how you like this episode. Uh, You can email us at dramasoverflowers at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at dramasoverflow. You can find me on Twitter at Anisa Khalifa and underscore.
1: You can find me on Twitter at Not Now Sire.
2: And you can find me on Twitter at Festa Faster. And you can find us on Instagram at
1: Drummers Over Flowers underscore podcast. And just a
0: reminder that this episode is going to have like extended show notes on the blog. So um, just follow that link and you can find some of the articles that we referenced and some more reading materials so you can be extra nerdy yeah. like us. <laughs>
2: Check our sources. Exactly. Exactly. We want, we want, <laughs> To
0: cite our sources properly. So uh,
2: that's it. That's nice for listening, guys. Bye. Bye.